Well, take your Bibles this morning and be turning in them with me to the book of Psalms. And in just a moment, we'll be going to Psalm number 66, Psalm 66. And while you're turning there, let me, let me share an announcement. This is um, a little bit in the future, but I want to go ahead and say something uh, because of the nature of the event. And I don't want anybody coming up at the last minute saying, well, I didn't know about this, so I didn't put it on my calendar. But one of the, one of the needs, I think, uh, here at, uh, at First Baptist Church of Noonan, and one of the uh, areas that I'm going to address at least a little bit uh, during this next period of time, whatever time I might be here with you, is men's ministry. And I think it's something that's lacking here. Uh, has been for a while and certainly needs to be addressed. So we're going to start to address it at least in a couple of different ways. And the first thing is this, the 4th and 5th of February, guys, February 4 and 5, that is a Saturday and Sunday. We will be doing what we will call a Men of Integrity uh, Men's Conference. It'll be a Friday, uh, excuse me, a Saturday night event with dinner and one session, and then Sunday morning, both in the worship services and in a joint Sunday school class that we'll tell you more about a little bit later on. Uh, we have a guest coming to speak to our men specifically that will be, I think, a blessing to you. And it's going to kind of kick off some of what we're going to do. Uh, you will have the privilege of hearing Dr. Randy Kennedy. Randy is one of my dearest friends, but Randy has a, quite an interesting background. He has, was the longtime chaplain for the Atlanta Hawks uh, the last seven, eight years uh, before uh, he retired a year or so ago, he was the chaplain for the PGA Sunbelt Tour. And uh, Randy is one of the, the, one of the most uh, unique, powerful, motivational speakers that I've ever heard. And he will do a great job of speaking uh, to men. So guys, put it on your calendar, please. More information will come. We will need you to sign up so that we'll know how many to prepare for on that Saturday night. But that is February the 4th and February the 5th. And wives, you make sure your man comes. Amen? Put it on his calendar. Bugging him till he gets here. Nagging if you have to. Get him here. Okay, it'll be good. We'll have a good time together. Psalm number 66. Since next Sunday is actually Christmas, and we're having... Uh, one large service that morning. Uh, I decided I'd just wait till next Sunday to preach on Christmas. Could have done it a few weeks in advance. But just in praying what to preach, uh, the Lord just kind of put that on my heart. And I want to go this morning, though, to m one of my favorite books of the Bible, which is the book of Psalms, 150 such Psalms. And you'll be glad to know I'm only going to preach from one of them this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 66. And the title of the message today is, What is God Like? What is God Like? So if you would please, in honor of God's Word, stand with me. I will read our uh, text, the entire psalm this morning, out loud, and you follow along there in your copy of the Bible. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, How awesome are your works! Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give fringed obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. And they will sing praises to your name. And then you find, if you have a study Bible, out to the side, the word Selah. 
Selah. A lot of times you just read that, go over it, you don't stop and think about it. It's actually uh, put there as a musical interlude with songs that were meant uh, to be sung as this psalm was. But there are some who feel like it's there for other reasons too. In fact, one person interpreted that word and said about that word, Selah, it was put there to cause you to stop and think about what was said. In fact, one person interpreted it this way, see, what do you think about that? And anytime you read through the Psalms and you see that word Selah, it's reminding you to pause and reflect on what was just said by the writer. So here's the first time it's used. It's used three times in this Psalm. Verse 5, come and see the works of God who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay your vows, which my mouth uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts. With the smoke of rams, I shall make an offering of bulls with male goats. Selah. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Lord, thank you for this great psalm this morning. And as we consider who you really are this morning, help us to take these verses and understand them to see you maybe in a different light than we've ever seen you before. We thank you for these verses. Speak them clearly to our hearts. Help us to walk in obedience to them. And Lord, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Psalm 66 is anonymous in, in the sense that we do not know for certain who wrote it. There are many speculations about the author. There are some who believe King Hezekiah was the human author of this psalm. Uh, we're not certain. We do know that the spiritual author of it was obviously the Holy Spirit. One thing we do know about this psalm, this psalm is one of the many psalms that is included in our book of Psalms that was written for the choir director and it was intended to be used as a song in the worship service of the Jewish people. It's interesting that as you read through this Psalm as we just did, there are two primary emphases found in Psalm 66. This Psalm is about man. This Psalm is about God. And it speaks to both of these in a very clear manner. 
uh, Dr. John Phillips and his commentary on the book of Psalms, which by the way, I think is a classic. Uh, what a great job he did in going through all the 150 Psalms. He speaks of this Psalm in regards of man. And there in his simple way of alliteration and in his outlining of Psalm 66, he says that this Psalm speaks of man in a threefold manner. He talks about the happy man, he talks about the humbled man, he talks about the holy man. Well, it's not the emphasis on man that I want to look at this morning. I want to look at the emphasis on God that this psalm writer makes to us today. And though it is true that Psalm 66 is a psalm of praise to God for his great works, I believe it is also a psalm more importantly, that describes for us and is written to describe for us the very character and the very nature of God. In other words, this psalm in part addresses for us the question, who is God and what is God like? Now let me tell you why I think that's an important question. It's important in our culture today because we don't know. We have no clue who God really is. Or what God's really like. In fact, the truth of the matter is our culture as a whole has no clue about the real God that is the God of this Bible and the God of this world as we know it. There are many today who think of God simply as the big man upstairs that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with our life and living. And they don't hardly ever even think about him much less honor or reverence his name. There are others who think that somehow God is some big bully just waiting for us to get out of line. And when we do, he takes this big bully bat and he's waiting to hit us over the head because of things that we might do or might not do correctly. There are others, in fact, I believe this is one of the ones in our culture today that is so wrong. All we think of God as is some big glorified Santa Claus who is waiting up in heaven to meet our every wish and our every desire. And he is only there for our good and for our consideration. So he's there to bless me. And we have preachers today who are preaching that to their congregations. But if you really know the God of the Bible, and if you really come to understand the God that this psalmist wrote about, you will know that that is not God at all. So this writer deals with this issue. As he reflects on God, he describes for us in part the nature, the characteristics, the attributes of our God that makes him God. So that's what I want us to deal with for a few minutes this morning. So who is God really? What is God like? If you had to describe him to somebody, what would you say about him. Well, let's look at what the psalmist tells us here in Psalm 66. First of all, he tells us that God is a strong God. He is a strong God. In fact, in verses 1 through 4, he puts emphasis there. This entire psalm, to some extent, deals with this matter. He is a strong God. Verse 3, he says, How awesome are your works, speaking to God. Again, in verse 3, because of the greatness of your power, the greatness of your power. And then you find as you go on to read through this psalm that it was written as a testimony and a praise report 
to the Lord for his great and awesome deeds. This psalm begins by telling us that God is truly a strong and all-powerful God. Well, just how strong is he? Again, Psalm 66 reminds us that God is so strong that he turned the sea into dry land. He rules over the nations with his might. He answers prayer by his strength and by his might. Over and over again, not only in this psalm and in the book of Psalms, but all throughout the Word of God, God's Word recounts for us many, many deeds that God has done to prove His strength and His power to us. I mean, just go back to the book of Genesis in the very beginning. Well, you see, God creating the heavens and the earth. And by the way, let me say, and I think you know this, but let me just say for the record, I have no problem in believing God created the heavens and the worlds as we know it in six literal days. In fact, I don't think it took him 24 hours to do it because the Bible says this, God spoke and it came into existence. It says, God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. All it took was God speaking and what he declared came into existence. So I don't have any problem whatsoever believing it happened in a six literal day period of time. And the truth of the matter is, if you come to understand that God is a strong God, God is a powerful God, then you have no problem in believing God could create the world as it's declared to us in the book of Genesis. And by the way, one of these days, God's going to destroy this world just like he started it. You know, we, we read about the end of times and there's a lot of discussion about the last days and we certainly are living in those last days, I believe. But uh, we say, you know, one of these days, of the last days, there in the uh, Megiddo Valley in Israel, there's going to be a war of all wars there in the Valley of Armageddon. There's going to come the clash of good and evil. There's going to be one final big battle fought and uh, where God's going to do away with evil. Well, can I tell you this morning, it's not going to be much of a fight. In fact, all God's going to do is speak the word, and that's the end of it. That's how powerful he is. And just like he created the world with his word, he'll end the world with his word. That is how powerful God is. He is a strong God. And this psalmist begins with that attribute about him. Jeremiah 32, the, the prophet Jeremiah in verse 17 and 27, reflecting on this great, powerful, strong God says, All Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing, nothing is too difficult for you. And then later down in verse 27, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. And God poses this question to us as his people. Is anything too difficult for me? And the answer is absolutely not because you are God. Matthew 19, verse 26, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said to them, with people, this is impossible. And he was talking about a rich man finding salvation. But then he goes on to say these words, but with God, all things are possible. And why are all things possible with God? Because he is a strong God. That is why. 
So what is God like? What is his characteristics? Well, the writer of Psalm 66 reminds us he is a strong God. Secondly, in this psalm, not only does he tell us that God is a strong God, he then goes on to tell us that God is a sovereign God. He is a sovereign God. He deals with that in verses 5 through 7. Take a look again at verse 7, if you would. He, speaking of God, he rules by his might. He rules by his strength forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Hey, let me paraphrase that verse for you if I could. This is what the psalmist is saying. Don't let the wicked fool themselves into thinking they are in control of their lives. God is the one who has it all under his control. And because he is a strong God, he is a sovereign God. He rules over the affairs of man. He rules over the nations of this earth. Uh, you do know what I mean when I say sovereign, don't you? When we talk about God being a sovereign God, if you were to look up the definition uh, of sovereign in Webster's Dictionary, you would find that sovereign means supreme in power and strength. And then he adds these words. I like this. The chief. The chief. He's, he's, he's the main person. So God is sovereign. He is supreme in his power and his strength. And because he is a strong God having all power, he is therefore a sovereign God. There is no one of greater power. Therefore, God can do as he will. And when he does do something, he does not even have to ask anyone's permission to do it. He rules by his might. That's how powerful God is. The psalmist in Psalm 33 verses 6 to 11 framed it this way. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Why? Because he's a sovereign God. That's why. Even in the New Testament, when Paul was reflecting on the greatness of the Lord Jesus as Jesus came to this earth, knowing that Jesus Christ is God's son, as he's reflecting on Jesus, the second person of the, the Godhead. He speaks of the Lord in these words, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 18. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, 
and he is the beginning from the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And folks, can I say to you this morning, if he is a strong God and if he is a sovereign God, which he is both, then isn't he deserving to have first place in everything? Isn't he deserving to have first place in your life? And he certainly is deserving to have first place in his own church. So what is God really like? He is a strong God. He is a sovereign God. And then the psalmist in Psalm 66 goes on to tell us thirdly that God is a sustaining God. He is a sustaining God, verses 8 and verse 9. The author continues this great psalm of praise as he goes on to tell us to bless the Lord for what he has done. And why are we to bless him? The psalmist tells us because he sustains us in life and he does not allow our feet to slip. Well, what a powerful thought that is of God's working in our lives. He is a sustaining God. Uh, verses 8 and 9 again. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. That's how God works in our lives. And that's what he's doing in us. Many Bible commentators, as I study these words, tell us that this verse alone should help you to believe, as the Bible teaches, in the eternal security of the believer. In fact, consider this this morning. God is the one who gives us life. God is the one who gives salvation and life to us. But note here, once he gives it to us, it does not say that God says to us, okay, fellas, now that you have it, see what you can do with it. I gave it to you, but don't let go of it. Hang on to it as hard as you can. And that's certainly not what is said, nor is what is meant anywhere in God's Word. The God who gives life sustains that life. He keeps us in life, and he does not allow our feet to slip. He is a sustaining God. Now, I could stand here this morning uh, and read verse after verse after verse after verse after verse in the Bible that backs this truth up. Here's just three that I'll give you quickly this morning. Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24. The psalmist says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. He is a sustaining God. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul frames it this way, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's God's sustaining work in us. When he began that good work in our hearts and our lives at salvation, he didn't do it and just said, All right, now you're on your own, figure it out. No, he's working out of us what he's worked in us. That's the whole process of the Christian life. That's how God is working in the lives of his children, what he worked in us through giving us salvation. He's now working out of us through the person of the Holy Spirit as we learn to walk in the Spirit and walk in his power and strength. And Paul understood that clearly 
I'm confident of this very thing. That he who began that good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus because he is a sustaining God. What about Hebrews 7 verse 25? It puts it this way. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But what a great promise that is. When God saves us, when God redeems us, he keeps us. It's not us to, uh, up to us holding on to God with all our might. We don't have any might. It's up to God holding on to us. That's our hope. In fact, that's the only hope we got. But that's what he does. He sustains us because he's a strong God and because he is a sovereign God. Well, over the years, one of my spiritual heroes uh, has been and is uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon. And um, Spurgeon has, a, has written many, many things over these years. His sermons, many of them are still in print. Uh, the only problem about reading Charles Spurgeon is that he, he spoke in the old English language, what I call the King James language. So when you go back and read it uh, for simple minds like mine, it's kind of hard sometimes to follow him. And I, I find myself reading something going, well, let me try that again to see if I can follow him. But if you can wade through it, boy, the truth that Charles Spurgeon had. And Charles Spurgeon was a wordsmith. He, he could just take words and paint pictures with words. And here on one occasion, he's speaking about the matter, this matter of the perseverance of the saints and eternal security having to do with this sustaining issue that the psalmist talks about here in Psalm 66. Uh, I will read to you just a little bit about what Spurgeon said. This is really good. Bear with me. It'll take you a minute to see where he's going with it, but this is really rich. He wrote and said, If I did not believe the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints, I think I should be of all men the most miserable because I should lack any ground for comfort. How can a believer perish if that scripture be true, which says that every believer is a member of Christ's body. If you will only grant me my head afloat above the water, I will give you permission to drown my fingers, he says. Try it. You cannot do it. Then he writes, Christ, the head of the body, is in heaven. And until you can drown the head of the body, you cannot drown the body. And if the head be in heaven and beyond the reach of harm, then every member of the body is alive and secure and shall at last be in heaven too. And then he says these words, If my good works had put me into Christ, then my bad works might turn me out of him. But since he put me in when I was a sinner, vile and worthless, he will never take me out, though I am a sinner, vile and worthless still. And there's one reason for that, folks. Our God is a sustaining God. He keeps our feet from slipping. He keeps our lives from slipping. 
He's the one holding on to us. It's not so much a matter of us trying to hold on to him. He's holding on to his children. He's a strong God. He's a sovereign God. He's a sustaining God. Fourthly, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 66, he is a sanctifying God. He is a sanctifying God, verses 10 to 15 and verse 18. You see, when we become a child of God, God goes into the refining business in our lives. And in order to refine us, sometimes he allows us to go through the fire. Sometimes he allows us to walk through a flood. But I want you to notice again verse 12. And I tell you what, when you read verse 12 and you really grasp what he's saying, it's almost enough to make a Baptist say amen. It comes real close. I mean, it's almost something you get excited about. If you really understand what he's saying, listen to it. You made men ride over our heads. In other words, he's talking about, God, you've allowed armies to come into our country and defeat us and to oppress us. And God did that often when he was bringing judgment over the sins of the Israelis. Uh, he, he would allow armies to come in and, and rule over them. You made men ride over our heads, verse 12 says. We went through fire. We went through water. The floods came. And then he says these words, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. A place of abundance. In other words, God, because you are a strong, sovereign, sustaining God, there have been times that you've allowed me to go through the fire. You've allowed me to walk through the floods. You've allowed those to rule over my life. But yet you did it to bring me to a place of abundance. That's God's sanctifying work in our hearts and our lives. God refines us to bring us into his abundance. Um, let me see if I can illustrate that for you. Uh, I have on my uh, ring finger this morning a ring that Robin had made uh, for me when we were uh, engaged for our wedding. Uh, a friend of theirs that lived down the street from where she grew up was a jeweler, and she had this ring uh, made for me. Uh, it's very special to me for a lot of obvious reasons, but on this ring, it has the Christian fish, which in, Old Testament, in uh, early New Testament times was a mark of a Christian, and inside the, the fish, there is a cross. Uh, it reminds me of my commitment both to her, it reminds me of my commitment to Christ. But you know, that, that, that gold, or this, it's a white gold, but in some cases, silver, those fine uh, gems that we find great value in. If you would have seen that gold or that silver when it first came out of a mine, you would not be impressed. Just looks like a chunk of dirt to a large extent. Might be a little shiny in there, but that's it. And they tell us that to get to the pure Gold, the stuff that is expensive and the stuff that they can make fine jewelry out of, they have to go through a refining process. And in that refining process, they do it to get all the impurities out to bring all the pureness of the gold to the top. They do it by heating the metal until it becomes liquid. And then they bring the liquid to a bowl 
After it comes to a boil, they then let it cool off. The gold or the silver settles down in the bottom of the place they're boiling it, and the impurities come to the top. They skim the impurities off, and they go through the process again. I'm told it takes seven times to bring out the pure gold out of the way it comes out of the earth. It is the boiling process. That's the refining process. To take out all the junk in a person's life so that the gold might shine through. Just like they take out the junk of the gold so that we get the benefit of the expensive jewelry. Do you know that's what sanctification is all about? When God saves you, whether you understood it or not, you signed up for God's sanctifying work. God began sanctifying you from that moment on. Really, this process began even before the foundations of the world, just as salvation did. But from the moment you came to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, God began to work in you to take out everything in your life that shouldn't be there so that the life of Jesus who is in you now might shine forth. And oftentimes, God has to take us through the fire to do it. Oftentimes, he has to take us through a flood. Sometimes he allows struggles and difficulties to break us, to bring us to our knees so that he can skim off everything in our life that doesn't look like Jesus. So he can bring out of my life what he put in me when he put his son Jesus in my heart and my life. That's the sanctifying work of Almighty God. That's what he's doing in all of our lives. I, uh, I, told, I told the early service this morning, when I was growing up, uh, my mama was uh, a pretty strict disp disciplinarian. I had to be careful how I'm telling all this this morning because she's listening right now. So I, I want to be, she, she reminds me, don't make them think I'm such a mean person. She was not a mean person. She was a great mama. Uh, but she was the disciplinarian in our family. My dad traveled for a living most weeks. He was going out of town uh, four to five days out of the week. And I was the oldest of three children. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And uh, they kept acting up and needing discipline. I don't know what they were so bad, but mama never said, I never, 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 never heard my mother say uh, to them. She, one time she said it to me, but she never said, wait till your daddy gets home. I'll be honest with you, I'd much rather my mama, I mean, my dad got hold of me and disciplined me than my mother. Daddy knew mercy, mama didn't. <laughs> and any time I was about to get a spanking, uh, thank God for a mama who spanked me, because I needed it. I don't ever remember getting one of them spankings and whoopings that I didn't deserve, never, never. Anytime she was about to do that, though, she always said two things to me. Didn't understand them at all at that point. Number one, this is what she said. This, she's about to whip me. <coughs> this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I thought to myself, right. <laughs> I didn't say that to her, but that's what I thought. 
I didn't understand that until I had to spank one of mine the first time. Then I understood exactly what she meant. But then she'd say something else that again took me a long time to understand. She'd say these words, I'm only doing this because what? I love you. You know what she would say? You're my child. I love you too much to keep you from acting like an idiot. I love you too much to let you get by acting like a fool. I love you too much to let you act like this. So what would she do? She would apply the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge so that I might change my ways. And she did it because she was sanctifying my life. She was trying to teach me how to live right. Do you, do you know today that's what God's doing in you? That may explain what's going on in your life right now. And you know what? The more stubborn we get and the more we say no to God, he's patient, but he won't give up. Paul wrote about this in the book of Hebrews. If you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, I do. He wrote about the discipline of the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. That's what this psalmist is talking about. This is what he wrote, Hebrews 12, 5 to 11, and then I'll wrap this up. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which we have all become partakers, but if you are without it, he says, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we might share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hey, if God has saved you, he loves you too much to leave you on your own. And because he is a sustaining God, he is sanctifying your life to make you a partaker of his holiness and to remove everything out of your life that doesn't look like Jesus, his son. And by the way, if you can live your life in sin and get by with things that God never disciplined you, then you've got every reason in the world to question whether or not you've ever been saved. You're an illegitimate child, according to these verses, and not a son at all, because God won't let his children get by with rebellion and sin. That's why. Well, what's God like? Well, according to the psalmist, He's a strong God. He's a sovereign God. He's a sustaining God. He's a sanctifying God. And lastly, he says here in verses 16 to 18, he's a satisfying God. I like this. He's a satisfying God. My goodness, this is good. Look again at verse 16. 
psalmist says, after all these things, come and hear, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Let me tell you how good God's been to me. And then this psalmist goes on to tell us how satisfied he is in God. He tells us that God has answered his prayers. God has cleansed his heart. God has shown him his loving kindness. God has satisfied his heart as no one else or nothing else in this world can do. That's God. He is a satisfying God. He satisfies us with life. He satisfies us with abundant life. He satisfies us with eternal life. And that's the testimony of this psalmist. And it's the testimony we find all through the Word of God. In John 9, 25, we read about a blind man that was healed by Jesus. Listen to his testimonies. He tells others about it. He says, whether this man is a sinner or not, I don't know. But then he says these words, this one thing I do know, though, whereas I was blind, now I see. This blind man meant the satisfying God of all creation, and he left him a satisfied man. In John 8, verses 10 to 11, we read about a woman that had been caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus spoke to her about her need for repentance of her sin, and then he told her, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on, sin no more. And this sinful lady left satisfied when she met the satisfying Savior, the Lord Jesus himself. In the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, we read about a man by the name of Saul that was traveling down the Damascus Road on his way to pers persecute Christians and to try to stamp out this new movement of the church. It was there on that road that a blinding light struck him down only to find that that light was the Lord Jesus himself. There on the road to Damascus, Saul met Jesus, the satisfying Savior. Who are you, Lord, was his declaration. And there Saul became the Apostle Paul on that day, and he left a satisfied man. Hey, folks, this God who is a strong God, a sovereign God, a sustaining God, a sanctifying God is also a satisfying God. He can satisfy you as no one else can and as nothing else on this earth can or will. By the way, one more word. It's not in this psalm. It's reflected in this time of season. We're about to celebrate Christmas. Can I also add to you, he's a saving God because of his great love for us, even while we were yet in our sin, God initiated salvation. The Bible tells us it really was initiated before the very foundations of the world. In a more practical sense, in our time frame, God sent his son to this earth 2,000 years ago. He sent him as a babe to be born in the filth and the mire of a stable. He would live a perfect life to later go to the cross of Calvary there to bear the sin of the world. Here's the sinless one dying for sinners like you and me. On Calvary's cross, he shed his perfect 
blood so that we might be forgiven of our sin. God raised him from the dead, God the Father, to prove that he was who he said he was and he had power to do what he could do. And now, through faith in his son Jesus, it's the way we come to know this strong, sovereign, sustaining, sanctifying, satisfying God. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why? Because he's a saving God. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And because he sent Jesus, when we trust him for our sin, believe on him with all of our heart, confess him as Lord of our lives, we can come into a personal relationship with this God that is described in Psalm 66, and we can know him in a personal way. And that's really what we're celebrating this whole Christmas season. What a God we serve. Amen. Father, thank you for your word today. Boy, what great truth. So much here we could unpack. Thank you that you are the great, powerful, wonderful, sovereign God that you are. Oh, God, it blows our mind. It should blow our mind that you would, you would even think of us. Yet because you created us, you loved us enough that you did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves in regards to our sinful state. You sent Jesus. Lord, we thank you for that. We celebrate that this time of year. But Lord, thank you today that you are a God that we can know, that you're personally involved in our lives. Even as this psalmist reflected on you, and he reminded us to pause and reflect of all the great attributes that are yours. We thank you that we can know you personally. And Lord, my prayer today would be for someone that might be here in this building, someone that might be listening online, someone that might be listening to the rebroadcast of this later on down the road, that Lord, today, if they do not know you, if they don't know in their heart of hearts that there's been a time in their life that they've personally come to know this God that is so extolled here in Psalm 66. Oh, Lord, today might be their day of salvation. Holy Spirit, I pray you'll bring conviction. I pray that that person might see their sin, but I also pray that they might see the Savior, Jesus, today. Lord, convict them of their need for you. Help them to call out in faith. Help them to believe today. The Bible tells us that whosoever believes in him should not perish but ever have everlasting life and that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if there's never been a time in your life that, you can do, that you've done that, you can do that right now, right here today. We're going to stand in just a second and sing a hymn of commitment. If you're here today and you've never been saved, as we stand and sing, I'm going to be down front. Would you just step out, make your way down front, take me by the hand and say, Pastor Ken, well, God's speaking at my heart. He's, I don't understand it, but he's knocking at my heart's door right now. I need to give my life to Christ. I need to find eternal life. We'll have one of our staff members take you back to the back for just a few moments and from God's Word share with you how you can give your heart and your life to Christ today, how you can come to meet God on a personal manner this very morning. So will you come? As soon as we begin to sing, don't hesitate. 
And then, Christian, if you're here today, if God has spoken to your heart, you need to respond. Hey, this altar's open if you want to come kneel and pray for a few moments. Maybe right there where you stand and sing in a moment, you can do business with God. Maybe someone needs to make some type of an outward commitment this, this morning. This is a time for you to respond. May you do so at God's appeal in your heart. So, Father, we commit this time to you now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Lead leads us in our singing. You respond this morning as God has spoken to your heart.